destroying the entire Welcome to Radio Free Demos, an Ixendraconis fan podcast broadcasting from ASAF Hall at Lake Voltaire on Demos. Demos, come here for the memories. We don't have many other options, although we are opening a bowling alley. This week's episode is episode 19, Host Chatter. So before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to say hello to our hosts. With me this week is Ashtar, Wines, and I'm Corbeau. So, guys... Last week, what did you do during the Starbucks versus Donut Beast breakfast war? It's a very stressful time. Personally, I'm a huge Starbucks fan. That's why I was asked to leave the literary penal colony. So I stayed at Starbucks and really blogged for the offensive. And I think I passed on a valuable message to Donut Beast supporters. I did my bit. I, I've had my time as a card-carrying Starbucks patron but uh with, with the recent hot zone I, I relocated and gave a try to hot cross buns and i've got to say i'm sold oh man that's third party action there i'm, I'm not comfortable with this yeah i, I also s- switched out for cookies and falafel is it falafel is it cookies it's breakfast <laughs> <laughs> layered treats <laughs> Can anything that big hide for so long a time? Yeah. I wonder what their next move will be. So, two updates from the world of Ixundraconis this week, or the meta world of Ixundraconis. First off, there is HSD's first contest. It was recently posted to the HSD Tumblr. I will link to that in the show notes. The concept is that if you give them some wonderful piece of if you submit a piece of HSD craft or some writing, maybe a clever musical remix, I don't know, artwork, then they will, for the winners, give you a custom HSD mini. And those have a value of about you know 35 or $40. They're nice pieces. So I'm really excited by that. The deadline is the end of July. So uh, either polish up some stuff you've had on the back burner or get to the word processor. There's a long rambling discussion of your character count yes but there's fierce competition <laughs> if rendered in freestyle rap <laughs> yeah. oh yeah like a like a sort of poetry slam character what's my character sort of thing no i don't like this idea <laughs> <laughs> that's not what poetry's for you're the poet hmm. second big update and this is some long-awaited news for a lot of us sev announced the launch of the exundraconis lore book kickstarter in about a week and a half now at this point, so it's coming very soon. Hi, this is Corbeau. I am contacting myself from the future, which is your past, or possibly your future, to correct myself. The Kickstarter for the Book of Lore, Sound in the Silence, I think, went live already uh, about four hours ago, and it has already passed its lowball goal of $7,000. Uh, there's some really neat reward levels, including the opportunity to name your own Blue Sky Station, and of course a number of chances to get into the artwork of the book itself. So do check it out on Kickstarter. The link will be in the show notes. And if you make a pledge, or if you don't make a pledge, make sure you leave comments because that sort of thing helps the project's long-term analytics and adds to its kickstarter juice somehow there's all kind of metrics in the background go spend support space foxes take care uh, mini me shut shut this down if you're on the discord channel there's been a lot of interesting tidbits posted including a travel lanes map of soul some interesting insight into marsco as a champion of vector rights and a really cute picture of a shark Yep. So lots of new content up there. More coming every day. Uh, high production value, as always. Really excited about this one. It has 
taken you centuries to even grasp what we developed eons of your years ago. News from Radio Free Demos. Not a lot of new content on the website. There's some small updates. Our big news this week is that this is more or less our one-year anniversary. So, hooray. I didn't get you anything. Oh. Sorry. Okay. Um, well, that, 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 that floated and fell like a balloon. <laughs> Delete. Um, Yay. <laughs> thank you. Um, so if you'd like to get us something, please go over to iTunes and leave us a recommendation or a review and subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play. In the world of furry podcasts, there's not a lot of competition, so every little bit helps. Thank you so much. Be honest. But not too honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, honest within the context of a uh, role-playing game furry podcast. We've, <laughs> we hope you've lowered your expectations enough. <laughs> How can any race be so stupid? Ah, oh, don't ask me any questions. I'm just a hard hand just like you. Questions and opinions. Uh, we don't really have answers, so opinions is the most you're going to get from us. This week on the Discord channel, a fellow by the name, I guess he's a fellow, by the name of Metro Fallout asked, hmm. Asked a question. It wasn't a question, really. It was it was more of a topic icebreaker. He wanted to know how he could go about getting a backpack that would let him have multiple limbs, sort of an on and off multi-limb operation. He kind of extended the idea to being more like an implant or surgery that let him have multiple limbs and maybe opened up the idea of add-on packages to have four limbs, eight limbs, ten limbs. A lot of this was spurred on by a picture on the Discord of a moose with four arms, so that was kind of the, the source of this, but it's still kind of an interesting question that ties back into a lot of our gaming history. So the question was, how can I do it, and how much should it cost? Well, from a game balance perspective, the <clears throat> for, for me, the question would be, bottom line, what are you trying to get out of it? Is it just kind of cosmetic? Uh, do you want to be able to carry more weapons at the same time? Do you want to be able to have a strong, higher strength? Do you want an extra attack per round, because you're not going to get it? <laughs> That's where I'd start, is bottom line, what are you trying to do? that you couldn't do before. And then from from that, say this is extremely useful or this is only occasionally useful. It doesn't need to be that hard to get. It doesn't need to be that expensive. And my approach was to find the nearest analogous product and kind of back away from that, which left me with the push frame network or maybe macro, depending on what exactly you wanted to do. But yeah, I think the big question is what is the desired effect of this surgery or toy is it the push frame is what the non-anthros use? Well, the push frame is what the non-anthro uses. The push frame network, I think that's what it's called, is one that can target an entire room. And you get multiple things floating around. I think you can go up to 10 pounds and the police will take it away from you, which is very awkward because it's an implant. <laughs> Good name, Poltergeist. Yes. <laughs> the core really does need to be, what does the player want out of this? If we're looking for a role play type, issue if we're looking for character design or character development that's one stance if you're looking for a mechanical framework or how it inter interacts with the rules especially as you broached in combat that's a completely different question and it is fairly important within hsd whether we're talking about biological or technological add-on you can go either way with that uh, vectors by this point have certainly decoded the genome enough that they can start bolting on parts if they so chose it's not particularly difficult, although it may be definitely expensive. You start treading closely into blip waters if you start going too crazy off of the pattern. But even within the standard concept constraints of a vector, you still have pegasi and angels and other such more mystical creatures that still fall under more standard vector. Well, and those have multiple appendages they'll have the tar legs or angel wings in some cases but i don't think there's any of them that give you an extra arm listener and discord chat member zarpalis who has always been a wealth of hsd information left a comment that uh, i really wanted to integrate into this episode as a correction there is in fact a surgery that gives you extra arms it's called augmentation it costs uh, 200 credits so we're about right on that 
It's on page 204 of the HSD main rulebook. While it gives you extra arms or an extra limb or an extra head, I don't know, it doesn't actually give you any useful game effects. Effectively, the surgery duplicates the how-did-that-get-there surgery, but it doesn't give you any perks. So you have a limb that acts like a limb, whatever that means, but it doesn't give you any bonuses, it doesn't give you any special effects. You can't modify it to give you flight. Not that an arm would give you flight anyway. So, without having game effects for the extra limb, it's not really a very useful guide to how to implement the robot arm concept. But it is worth correcting since it was a pretty big oversight on our part. Thanks, Arpalus. Mini-me close this. There's Prehensile Tail, which comes close, that may be the only analogous operation in all of the books, but nothing that'll give you a pair of extra fully functioning arms, at least in the morphism category. Right. There's nothing immediately apparent in the books itself. Although you could take a close look at avians. Most avians are going to have their arms and wings kind of a hybrid appendages, Mm -hmm. but you can get the avians that have separated wings and arms. But you're still not necessarily getting an extra shot with your gun. Again, like you said, yes, that doesn't have a necessary combat interaction, but that's a little bit separate of the mechanics of how to build such a thing. Fair enough. So I think within like the genome itself, within the vector program, you have some blueprints for adding an extra pair of arms somewhat built in. So that's not outside the realm of possibility that you could put together this and maybe apply it to yourself. Okay, in the, in the kind of in-game physics. Right. It's internally consistent to the biogenetics that we understand within HSD, if you want to put it that way. Okay. Which I do. So we call that maybe a major surgery, which would be about 200 credits, more or less on par with any of the lower-end game-modifying implants. It's not a listed surgery. No. So I would not necessarily follow those rules. And this brings you over to the technological side as well. I think whether you're going biological or technological, you're probably going to be looking at the craft rules for something like this. Unless there's an established enclave of six-armed, four-armed types running around, Mm -hmm. the technology may exist, but the blueprint doesn't exist. So you need to blueprint it out and then get a qualified surgeon to learn the blueprint and perform it for you. It seems like it's more or less analogous to like the the generic surgeries, though, where the low end one is just different eye color. The mid-level one is I would like fur instead of scales or where's my second tail. And then the I think 100 to 200 is the and then something else that will frighten your game master sort of category. That's possible. There are, there are options. There are different options. And I mean, you actually touched on it right there. What is adding a second tail? That's adding a extra appendage. But. I would argue that adding a second tail is a little bit different from adding a second set of fully functional arms. Mm -hmm. But you can work either way, and you can also kind of scale that up or down depending on how much the PC wants it. Yeah. If this really is just going to be, oh, look at that guy. He's got four arms. But it doesn't affect play style or mechanics in any way. Then, yeah, the major surgery might be absolutely appropriate. If we're going to go building, well, I want to be holding a long arm in one hand just in case I want it, mm-hmm. and then grab a club, grab a pistol and a tower shield on the other side. Yeah, you know, just so I, I don't have extra attacks. But you know, sometimes I use my left hand. Sometimes I use my right hands. Uh-huh. Sometimes I want like double shotguns. Sometimes I need the shield. Yeah, that is a moderate advantage that may take a more a higher level of buy-in. Which the GM should think about because. If you make it too good, then everybody's going to want it. And if everybody has it, then, well, where's the fun? <laughs> or not even that. If you make it too cool, then everybody else is feeling a little less so by comparison. Yeah, yeah. He's driven into an arm an arms race. Oh, that's hilarious. Oh. <laughs> I didn't intend that, honestly. <laughs> I would think, well, if you want extra arms, I mean, again, unless it's just cosmetic, uh, it's because you want to do something. If you're an engineer character or something, perhaps you want to say, oh, these are, it's an extra arm made for precise electronics and stuff like that. And so kind of what it would be would be a built-in tool set. Or if you're an artist, maybe it it has like built-in spray cans and stuff like that, because that's what you want to use it for. I, I, I would look, again, focus at me, as we've said before, what do you want to do with it? For game mechanics, either one of those might just be like plus one die or a plus one skill adjustment, like a set of tools. 
just a useful enhancement, but not really a new capability. Yeah, and, and situationally, it might be, oh, if you're being grappled, it might the GM might say, well, I'm going to give you a small advantage because you've got extra arms. Yeah, like the like the morphism. Right, which is probably not, you know, in of itself, not going to be worth having it for. You, you probably want it for something else. You probably want it for lifting strength, for detailed use, or who knows what built-in stuff. Because that's just your character. Yeah, yeah. I'd even argue that encumbrance, having an extra set of hands to hold an extra set of tools is really cosmetic as well, considering the amount of attention most game tables pay towards encumbrance that's almost a non-issue well encumbrance is how much you carry is a non-issue in terms of being able to use a a two-handed weapon and a a shield or something like that that's getting into having a bit of an effect yeah unfortunately it makes a little bit more difference in combat mechanics if only because dropping a weapon and pulling out another one true has a certain cost. And if you can just hold four weapons, you're bypassing that cost. Right. Not saying that you would get extra shots out of any of the weapons. You would still have to have two of your four hands free to fire and or reload. Uh But just having extra carrying capacity has a small adjustment there. Yeah. But if we take the whole thing and look at it from the technical aspect, then it's it's both more and less complex Uh because the technical aspect, technological aspect has a set of rules for creating new things that don't exist. And that's the whole craft chain. Mm -hmm. So you can immediately start walking down that path and going, okay, here's, here's the path that you're going to walk down. Here's the checkpoints. Here's some of the stuff that's already in rules for how to put this together. What we need to define is what you're, output going to be what's your final product going to look like Uh and the game actually has something that is fairly close already the drone controlling implants the drone controller that you have essentially functions as an extra appendage that you more or less control through man machine interface all that good stuff Uh, now a drone flies around so it's not quite the same so you can argue that having a hand actually having a servo arm attached to your back or attached to your backpack is not less complex yeah. and less advantageous. Not than, quite as useful as if it, it can fly over there and do whatever. Right. But that nicely seats it within the power spectrum of technological artifacts. Yeah. I think the drone controller implant uses your standard battle battle pool to take action. So you're not really dramatically expanding your capabilities on like a granular character sheet basis. You're adding extra power, but you're not increasing the number of attacks per round or et cetera. Yeah. Exactly so. And that's the same framework that I would be looking at to craft the specs for a new technological backpack server arm or whatever. I'm not actually that comfortable with using the craft rules for something that would functionally be in my beloved role-playing game system, GURPS, be a 10 or 15 point merit. I'd rather see it executed more with at least reference to the character advancement rules, like maybe it translates into some sort of skill talent or it holds down one of those slots, or you'd have this instead of getting a stat increase where it got some character point value behind it. Yeah. I like using the craft rules because I'm desperately trying to keep the craft rules relevant. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We haven't used them yet in our game. Well, there's, they're a very narrow niche rule set right now. Mm Mm-hmm. They're just not worth it for small stuff. In a hyper-commercialized area, most of what you want is going to have somebody will be filling that market need somewhere. So the crafter will really exist either for like mega structures or or maybe to craft the GM required MacGuffin to move the plot along. Things no, that just don't you, you can't just craft the one true ring, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody did once or true. nine times. <laughs> Yeah, but the licensing only covered one. (laughs) I feel frequently like HSD tries to walk with a fairly light touch on areas like this. I would think the author would create something that was kind of like a momentum trigger where when it's active, you can use more battle pool points towards either combat action or support action, which would represent having extra firepower, extra limbs, but it would not dramatically increase the amount of actions you can take per round. That's an interesting way to approach it. I I was approaching it as kind of post-character creation. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at surgeries, you're looking at technological add-ons. But yeah, if you want to spin that back and look at it as a different possible mutation. Yeah, kind of like a morphism. That, that does offer a different way to build it. 
And I mean, you can certainly access these with a full body replacement later on. Yeah. My feeling is that the momentum stuff is pretty weak. doesn't have much of a game effect. I think if somebody wants an extra limb, they probably want a more visible game effect than something that comes up once in a blue moon. Yeah, but again, this is kind of a rules light system, not consistently. And in some of those rules light systems, it's more... Well, the game effects you get are almost more cosmetic than actual, and I think that kind of fits that bill. That may not be what the PC wants, what the player wants, but it kind of fits the way these rules work in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I think part of the reason it feels a little bit light is a little bit due to the system itself. And what I mean by that is with HSD as a GM, I have five different players. So that's probably five different mutations that five different momentum triggers that I can keep in the back of my mind to provide a place to set up. Uh, liar. I also have five different motivations. We all took feet, Ashtar. Quiet, you. <laughs> and that's not true. Mostly. <laughs> Maybe it is. No, it's true. Quiet, you. Okay. <laughs> okay, so I have five different mutations. I have five different motivations. Uh, I have five different talents. Maybe a few more now that we're starting to develop a little bit more. That's actually a really large number of very point-specific um, advantages that the players can get for me to try and keep in mind when I'm crafting things, putting things together, just recognizing them. The player really has to take the initiative and kind of watch for places where a momentum trigger can be used and kind of set that up maybe a turn or two ahead to activate their momentum trigger. Because honestly, I'm going to struggle to remember it. Yeah. And so that's kind of a two-way street. So that probably contributes to why they can be felt as a little bit weak, because at the same time, while you as a player may be having to remember your momentum trigger, mm -hmm. you also have to remember what, how many points do I have in my battle pool? How much does it cost to do a melee action? Where's my nearest cover? How many defensive points should I save or how many should I use up front? There's a lot going on in combat, and it can be difficult sometimes, especially with a new system or especially in the entry term to really getting used to a new system of just remembering all the options that you had available. Mm -hmm. And that's something that crops up in quite a few different systems. Sure. Some other things I think you could compare this to in game would be uh, a surgery slot, because those tend to have a maximum of your mind presence or body strength or some such. And if these fit to one of those slots, that would be a fairly clear character sheet limitation on them that's already part of an existing mechanic. Another character sheet idea that we kind of stumbled across in our last game because it turned out nobody knew the rules was the stat roll requirement for using certain types of power armor. Active power armor. Yes, active power armor. To use this stuff in combat, which will give you like 175 hit points of protection, you have to begin each round with a body strength check, body dexterity it's an operate check. Oh. Although I forget right. exactly what the stat is. Or for dealing with living armor, you have to make a mind presence roll or something like that because it's a supernatural effect. So this is a place where you can have a downside to it. If you fail this roll, then your battle pool is halved because your limbs are all flailing randomly in different directions and you have to fight that. Hmm. Which is... Which makes perfect sense. It certainly explains why the entire populace isn't walking around in... Uh, grizzly armor. Yeah. As as a, a total aside in the, the champion system, you, you built powers based on strengths and weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses might be a power that only works some of the time. And there's a villain called the main named after a battleship that blew itself up is power armor suit with all these weapons that usually worked. And it was, it was sealed. It had life support. It could work underwater half the time. So that's comes to mind. <laughs> that's a wonderful concept for a villain. Yes. Oh, my God. That would be frustrating to be as a player. <laughs> yes. I would well, not want to play that well, as a player. The, the right player could do it, but a lot of people would just be five minutes in, tear up the character sheet and say, no, I want to play a fighter. Damn it. <laughs> you don't have to run faster than the bunny in the grizzly armor. You just have to run faster than your team. <laughs> than your teammate, right. When, when I was looking at this question originally, one thing that immediately occurred to me, and I think Wines touched on this, is in many cases an extra limb is not its not equipment. It is a major character modification. In GURPS, even the low-level versions that just can carry a thing are still 10 points cost, which is you know major language talent or 
infravision or some other low-level superpower. And if you crank it up to 11 and get an extra attack for it, you're dealing with the 25-point advantage, which is getting on towards superhuman flight, that sort of thing. Yeah. So these are not small things, and treating it as just purchasable or even craftable, to my mind, equipment is not the way to approach this topic. Again, depending on what you want to do. Yeah. If they just look pretty and show off your dress, that's fine. If a character only has one arm, it doesn't mean they have half the battle points. They can still pull a trigger on a gun just as often. And then toss the clip up into the air and spin <laughs> the gun around and flip it through. Ideally. You can't see the motions there, but we're doing some major gun through right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed. Golf, golf clap. We just have a non-anthro ammo squirrel who just runs down your arm and slams it in for you. <laughs> That would be so cute. <laughs> this is my loading squib. <laughs> it could be a, a cog named Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> we all know that cogs don't like to be used as tools. They do, however, make lovely accessories. <laughs> levels. Hmm? It works at so many levels. <laughs> this is the most fantastic story I've ever heard. And every word of it's true, too. So after a hiatus of perhaps four weeks, maybe six, we had another episode of our ongoing HSD campaign, which increasingly feels a little like the, the third gamers movie where they have to get everybody together at Gen Con to actually have an episode of the <laughs> game. And even then they didn't have an episode of the game happen. <laughs> So this was kind of a, a a new plot, a new fresh start sort of moment here. It did come at a fairly natural break in the story itself, moving from one weirdness of a contract into a more formal contract, changing over different just where the characters are in the plot and actually having some agency and deciding what they're doing next. So definitely nice there. But yeah, keeping the interest between game to game and keeping people just remembering who they are and what they're doing and what the plot's doing at any given time is always going to be a challenge. Mm -hmm. And especially a challenge for intermittent games that maybe run every two weeks or every month or get canceled during winter because of finals and <laughs> holidays. Yeah, <laughs> all that life. Yeah, I remember back when we could actually have games every week or every other week. That was another lifetime ago at this point. <laughs> Or another absence of a lifetime ago. <laughs> it does feel like we're at a, a point in our campaign where the characters aren't flailing around looking for plots anymore. We are starting to be progenitus in plays at this point and taking on missions that are in line with some elements of the plot's original concept. We're starting to go searching for heroic opportunities and put them on camera. Yay! We're definitely moving from a place where the characters are quote-unquote, given contracts and not really presented with much of a choice to a place where they have a little bit more agency. And that's always interesting because if I give the players three different contracts to choose from, I have to have at least three different seeds of an idea, something that I think I can build into an interesting contract. And then that pretty much has to be built before the next game. Right. So it's it can be a little bit more challenging, but it's it's fun. It was clever of you to give us all 75 credits each to play with because that stalled out the entire party for an hour <laughs> as they equipped themselves. As I said, there's a couple of techniques that you can use. <laughs> Actually, this brings us right back into our original question, which was, how do you keep the game flowing? And there are a couple of techniques that I do use to keep it going. One of which is to establish a um, non-table channel of communication, whether that's email or a telegram channel or whatever have at least something that people can talk on that is game-related. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll send a couple of in-game, in-character emails out every now and then that kind of wrap up the plot or provide some exposition, stuff that's probably a little boring to just have a speech at the table about, mm -hmm. but really colors the landscape, provides some extra personality to some of the different characters, um, good background information that people can take up or not. Yeah, Fill out that two weeks of travel time. It's a just a little reminder sometimes that, hey, there is a game. Hey, right. in a week, you're uh -huh. going to have a game and you can respond or what have you. Anytime that we're taking a long break, I always come to the table with some sort of question for, for the players. And that's at the end of the last game, you got some money. Uh, let me know what you did with it. Or mm -hmm. at the end of the last game, you 
quote unquote leveled. Uh, tell me what you did with your pip or with your talent uh-huh. or some sort of question about, OK, at the end of the last game, you kind of ended it here. But there were a couple of threads that we didn't quite finish. Uh, let me know how you spent that last day. Or is there anything else you wanted to do before moving on with the plot that we have? And that kind of moves the chapter breakpoint a little bit different from the physical real life breakpoint. You get that last little end of the last chapter coming in right at the beginning of the game and it gets people into the right mindset so that when we actually start the session that I want to play, people have had their little discussions about did you see Spider-Man and are there any girls there and just all the other, you know, gamer jokes that that happen as people right. settle down and start getting serious. Sure, sure. It's also good to lean on the one or two or three note-taking characters in the party, if you have them, if you're lucky enough to have them, to ask them to start developing a summary because the back-and-forth conversation of, and then this happened, but I don't really remember what happened then, not only does it let the party respond, but it also can fill in the game master on some gaps that they might have missed or what the PCs think is important. Really useful if you've got a note-taker in the party. Oh, yeah. Having a chronicler is amazing. Uh, my memory is very poor, so I take lots of notes. Um, but having someone that's just writing the writing the plot and the story as if it were more of a story or as if it were more of like a uh, memento or diary history type of thing is amazing to have. And sometimes uncomfortable when they call out exactly what you forgot <laughs> and where you were changing reality. But that's the advantage of being the universe is that, well... You can flex a little bit. Yeah. So we we got our new mission, which is to go and film a haunted house movie in deep space, more or less, uh, for journalism and for he- for science, not for science, for, for 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 PR. And there was a little hiccup right at the beginning because the Mr. Jones in question gave us 300 credits for the mission. But there wasn't a lot of follow-up, a lot of detail about what they wanted, what we needed to do for that money. It was just kind of a go on, and if it's good, we'll get you more money. I think this kind of runs into a couple of related questions about goodwill as a reward versus cash. Uh, Although in a a system where the experience points are kind of cash-based, that's a really important difference. And also, I think it kind of plays into the idea of of debt as well, but I want to get back to that later. I think the problem was that our more granular players weren't really sure how to handle a reward that didn't have clearly stated stretch goals associated with it. And that caused some some discord. So is it appropriate to say, instead of a cash reward, to say, hey, the company will smile at you more? Or do you need those those clear and crunchy guidelines? My initial feeling there is really that if it's not something that would be written into the contract, if it's not really material and quantifiable that it shouldn't necessarily be introduced as a reward. Mm-hmm. But that's that's working within the framework of the role play. Things like that let you build up allegiance and build up community and build up economy, let you build up the more flexible stats that you have to work towards. But those rewards are also scalable. We're going to give you 300 credits. That's very cut and dry. You, you achieve this, we give you 300 credits. It's much more problematic to say you achieve this and we will give you one point of allegiance with our corporation because that's not actually as cut and dry. You can fulfill the letter of the contract and extract your 300 credits by legal means Uh and really piss off your employer because you only fulfilled the letter of the contract and did not give them anything that they could actually use. This fulfills this ticks all the boxes in an HSD contract. But that certainly would not be improving your allegiance with the company. Quite the opposite. But if you hit everything in the contract, or even if you don't achieve the contract, but you really come through for the employers, go above and beyond and get them stuff that was not in the bounds of the contract itself, then you can get a lot more of that goodwill. And that could be kind of a replacement for the reward that was not given, that was not paid out. Yeah, those intangible rewards are really helpful when you're in a long-term campaign that has uh, more significant character development and not tightly goal-focused. And sometimes a lack of stretch goals, as it were, just kind of shows that a better relationship exists. If you've proven yourself for whoever you're working for with the corporation that you've got this working relationship with, maybe they don't feel the need to constrain you so tightly with rules and stretch goals. They're they're giving you a little bit more agency to go out and achieve something 
and they'll make sure that you're rewarded. Whereas if you're picking up a job for someone straight off of the soul net uh, that doesn't know you from any of the other billions of vectors around or hundreds of thousands of mercenaries around, I would expect that contract to be a lot more ironclad. You, you get this much for this. These are the stretch goals that we will pay out. And, you know, if you do something outside of that, that's really, really awesome. We're going to give you a wonderful thank you. Isn't and that's about it. It's just possible this idea works better in like the more 2.0 advancement model where there's kind of a template of how you get from level to level and a rough idea of X many games gives you Y many points back. Having been in some more confrontational tables, I think having the nebulous approach to rewards requires a lot of trust between the game master and the players, which is not to say we don't have that at our table. Success in this model is predicated on having that level of trust. That is built into the framework of HSD, though. HSD kind of sets up a concept of contract, offer, acceptance, performance, reward. And if you look at other game systems, that underlying tempo of play does not exist. Sometimes you'll have it. Sometimes the wizard in the in the end will approach the random group of full color characters against a backdrop of colorless NPCs and uh. go, you six, I have a quest. And sometimes you get a much more free-flowing rolling game that doesn't really come with these bounds of do this and I will reward you. It's the, the player. Sometimes the players have the goal and it's really up to them to create maybe what their purpose is or how they're going to achieve it. And their expectation of reward isn't completely internalized. It's not anything that the GM dangles as a carrot right. in front of them. And I think that's something that HSD takes it a different way and structures things a different way. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be every game session is a contract or every chapter is a contract. Yeah. Well, the, the, there is the, the characters have statistics for relationships. Um, it ranks a stat, which I, I feel like we haven't really seen change that much. Maybe there should be more. I don't know. Well, what's normal? How much churn should there be? How hard is it to, to uh, really yank RPF's crank? In, in a way that's going to numerically affect you. That one's very easy. <laughs> no, your, your RPF score has dropped significantly since the pregame started. Yeah, we're as like it were. <laughs> minus three now. Oh, <laughs> minus two. But uh, at the same time, our progenitus allegiance has gone up by one point for the corporation. And that's after two sessions. So there's that's a positive. Good. Is, is that the, the corporation, the, the, the party corporation? Uh, separate from the in, our individual relationships. Right. Okay. That's a concept that I seized on fairly early, was yeah. that I believe what's being thrown around lately is corporations all the way down. But uh, while you have the mega corporations and you have the corp smaller corporations under them down to like your corner store Starbucks corporation. <laughs> we are a femto corporation. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I read through the book, what, what struck me is that corporations are probably being stood up and torn down for everything. You uh -huh. want to get together for a study session? Someone's probably incorporated that. You want to like work for a couple of hours and put up a sign? Someone might have incorporated that. Mm -hmm. you, you get a group of people together that have an asset like a ship and are working together for some sort of aim, probably incorporated. Yeah. So from the very beginning, while I had each of the PCs create their character, I also pulled some of the stats around community and economy and kind of built half a PC that stood in for the corporation. So the corporation has its own allegiance with the different or reputation with the other major megacorps. It has its own kind of quasi ledger. I don't push that too hard sure. because it doesn't have a heavy score and it has its own community and ledger score that does improve um, slowly. <laughs> and this gives PCs a different avenue. They can improve their personal wealth or uh -huh. they can improve the strength of their corporation. So, which which makes sense. On the subject of corporate ledgers improving slowly, uh, we recently incurred a PC-created debt of 1,900 credits to IRPF. What was that for? It was just a prank, bro. <laughs> that was when I melted the uh, fleet of cars. Oh, right. <laughs> they, they took that the wrong way. So that that's a, a pretty heavy uh, sort of Damocles hanging over our party. But we're approaching that as more of a plot device than a, a well of credits to be filled up 
which is which is helpful because it's a lot of pennies. But the the idea of plot debt versus personal debt was how we started one of our conversations last game. Well, and that is on top of one of the trade-offs of the start that you had was you started with a ship, but you had a mortgage on it. Mm-hmm. So that basically doubled the amount of debt that the party is under, but most of it is plot debt, as you were saying. Yeah, we're still paying ourselves out of the coffer, so that's fine. If you're going to piss off a corporation, why not piss off the captain's corporation? <laughs> <laughs> so I have to thank you because you've set up my character for the classic ASR plot line, the Pygmalion plot line, because I do have the ability to fall for the ship's computer at this particular point in time. She has a real body. I'm not passing this opportunity up for like <laughs> setting up a relationship that will eventually come to destroy me. Thank you for the big red button, Ashtar. I love the big red button. It makes <laughs> me so happy. <laughs> Oh, the ship's AI. So while we're talking about plot debt and personal debt, one of the ways I can have separate the two is if you're dealing with a personal debt that really is attached to someone's character. I mean, they are getting something for whatever debt they incurred, whether it's pulling out a loan for a surgery or a new shiny toy or something that they personally cause and are accountable for. But that debt comes with the PC, but it really should not drag them down. Yeah, that's when you start getting like half your ledger goes to the corp that gave you the surgery or whatever ongoing. So it slows your advancement, but it doesn't destroy it. And well, even that can be pretty brutal. If you're losing half of your income for a debt that you do not have paid off for a long time, that really slows the amount of credits that you have incoming. But you've gotten experience points for it. I mean, in the you've gotten 20 groups points out of your, your surgery and that, that makes sense long term to have that advancement deficit. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to look for for a player debt is a, a player debt or a character debt is probably going to be very clearly defined. I'm going to want to know exactly what the credit number is at any given time. I want to know exactly what the payback schedule is. It's it's going to be written up pretty fine-tuned. So the, so the player is very aware of what his debt is, what he's expected, and to a certain extent what the penalties are for failure. That's a little bit different from plot debt. In so much as player debt should not really be a millstone around anyone's neck, plot debt has the potential to be a millstone around everybody's neck. So while it, it's very useful to be the other half of that carrot, the, the plot debt can be the stick that gets the PCs moving and get the characters doing something, but it doesn't need to be fine-tuned. So plot debt really should be, and this depends on your players and what their tolerances are, but it really should be a little bit more open. They should not be expecting every time that they sit down at the table that the GM is going to charge them 500 credits or they just get kicked out for the day or mm-hmm. I, I don't even know what, what that would be. But at the same time, it just can't be too abstract because then they then it's not an effective stick. Like the, the characters just feel that there's a dark force out there chasing them around and will eventually come due. But it, it's not immediate. There's no th- there's no real effect other than just being background. So. Well, excuse me, I I like the idea of the player corporation debt because the problems that that engenders are ones that, in theory, the whole party kind of had a say in it. So if you find yourself deep in the pocket of spyglass, well, everyone knew that was coming. And it's not just you. Because, like, if you personally have the problem that spyglass is after you, the rest of the party might say, wow, sucks to be you. Uh, we're going to go do other stuff while they imprison you or whatever. Uh, whereas if it's the whole, your whole company that, that is in, in, has a problem, then everyone acknowledges we all have to deal with this. And so, so that feels a little bit better. Less like you're leading your teammates around by the nose with your personal debts. Yeah, it's a shared problem. Yeah. And that's the best kind of problem. Yeah, yeah. And you can reflect that over to assets as well. A problem that we had seen in a previous game is that sometimes one character plays the pilot and the pilot owns the ship and the pilot also owns the massive debt on the ship, which introduces that constant problem of, well, if the pilot doesn't like what we're doing, he might just take his ship and go home. And y'all are kind of stuck on a station somewhere. This is not HST. This was a different game many years ago, but there, there was always that imbalance between the different characters and at the same time the pilot also was the one with the debt so the pilot was always going how much does this pay 
Is this contract going to pay us? Uh-huh. Can I make my mortgage off of whatever we're doing? Whereas the rest of the party may have, may have had completely different aims that was not quite aligned with, yeah, I'm going to need 500 credits by the end of the month, or you won't have a pilot and you won't have a ship. Because uh-huh. these guys are going to repossess me <laughs> and fly off with the ship. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it much more convenient to put that on the party as a whole, instead of on the shoulders of one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ch- champions had a, a, a uh, has a, a champions has a mechanic where, as you're building your character, you can build enemies and people who are after you. And there's an, an annoying consequence of that is if you say there's an army of ninja, robot ninjas who's out to get you, and they show up all the darn time, well then, then your party might quickly get irritated by a stupid army of robot ninjas that's always there, that every other plot line deals with the stupid robot ninjas, and they don't, you know, that's your background, dude, not ours. Um, so, again, I, I, I love the idea of the collective uh, corporation uh, or, or ship. I, I also think of, like, Bulldogs, where the ship you're on is kind of a character that everyone builds yeah, the, the the group is an important thing. It's not just a, a bunch of indiv- totally separate characters. Bulldogs is a member of the Fate game family, and in almost all of those games, part of the character creation is a shared experience where the character, the players build a shared resource like the city or the ship or the captain or something like that, just to clarify. Yeah, and, and the concept extends to you know, all other games too. Like in D&D, if you want to be... A, Say, I, I want, I'm an assassin. I want to do assassiny, sneaky stuff. Well, how does that fit with when the other half of the party is a fighter or something who wants to do very straightforward martial stuff? Really, if, if you want to have your slice of the adventure pie, everyone has to get together and say, well, we're, we're going to take turns or no, we, yeah, we, we like the sneaky stuff. Let's build a party that all does sneaky stuff together. It, it, it's good ideas. You don't have to, but you'll enjoy life more if you do. Well, that's the same way that, you know, when the fighter turns level 10 or 11 or so and suddenly becomes a baron and now has a whole castle that he has to run. And the first 45 minutes of every game is spent doing administrative, bureaucratic holding court. Oh, wait, we got rid of that edition, didn't we? That was back in 85, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I want to be skeptical and say, who would do that? But no, uh, sadly, I believe it. There comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. Well, after your description, I don't think I'd want to see it either. So wrapping things up, I'd like to ask the hosts what they thought was was cool this week in the media or the newspapers or the Kickstarters or whatever. I, I was watching some series about just strange disasters, strange things that happen in the world. And one of them is a coast somewhere on Earth that during certain seasons becomes covered with several feet thick foam, thick, thick, naturally forming foam. Sounds like a party. Yeah, yeah. That that got me to thinking, you know, just on on a station, maybe just once a year have some big party where you you hack the fire suppression system and it's instant involuntary foam party for everyone. (laughs) Or or every three months it malfunctions and does that on its own. Or that. (laughs) That that could be kind of fun, too. Unless you're short or a micro. And if the emergency lights are going off, too, you've got your whole rave, right? You're from a space station, aren't you? At least the engineers can say, well, hey, at least we got a chance to test the system. (laughs) For once, it's not our fault. My exciting news article this week was the surge of sea pickles off of the East Coast. These are weird little multi-organism colonies. They look like, they really look like floating, glowing sex toys, almost. And these little oblong, tubey glowy, translucent, spiky things. Each one's like six to 12 inches long are just bobbing all over the place off the coast of California, even up to Alaska, which is kind of strange because they're usually tropical sex toys. 
And they're really getting into all of the fishermen's nets. Nothing meaningful eats them. So they're gumming up literally a lot of uh, resources. And not only is it making fishing pretty close to impossible in the area, but scientists are concerned that there might be like a die off and that would create this oxygen that that kills off more wildlife. Might create pickle soup. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're weird little things, though. They're kind of the consistency of a gummy bear and kind of like coral or something. They're this colony of little microorganisms. Hmm. And they do glow because they eat glowing bacteria and algae and things like that. That's the name, uh, pyrosome. But I went to look for videos on YouTube and some of the related species of these things get to be like 10 and 20 feet long. These long glowing tubes that just extend like like CGI effects into the background, like something out of that old movie, The Abyss or something. They're huh. really amazing. But the sea pickles are just kind of comedic. They're like cucumber-sized things drifting in the tide overhead and stopping all fishing activities. Very strange, globby, weird, glowing things off the coast. It's a neat news story. Do they all think they're so larger than average? That was a penis joke. No, I, I got it. I got it. Thank you. I could draw a diagram. It's, I, I have one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, oh, they're, they're called the unicorn of the sea. Hmm. I don't know who calls them that. No, no one in their right mind, but I feel like it's worth pointing that out. Wow. Are we stopping there, Ashtar? I, I have nothing to follow that. <laughs> okay. Well, on that, Unicorns, man. On that note, catchy outro line. <laughs> Good. Intro music is Future Club and outro music is Tronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Or GM required, what's the word for the thing that you follow the whole time but you never actually see it or get it? plot. Mr. Jones in question gave us 300 credits for the mission. There was a... Blah, 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 blah.